Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast. My name is Donna Stair. And I'm her husband, Alan. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the music, the trivia, and the fun of WKRP. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. This week we've got some big news for the doctor. What is our episode, Donna? We're ready to discuss till debt do us part. The air date was April 5th of 1981. Written by Howard Hessman and Stephen Campman. Story editor Lisa Levin. Executive story consultants Steve Marshall and Dan Gunselman. Directed by Mr. Frank Bonner. Johnny welcomes the chance to end his alimony payments until he meets his ex-wife's intended. This is an important episode when it comes to the development of Johnny Fever as a character, and it was written by Howard Hessman. We're very sure Howard Hessman has contributed hundreds, if not thousands, of lines to scenes with the committee and in shows where he's worked. Howard's contributions were primarily improv, conceived and performed in the moment. His writing would always go from brain to mouth. Pen and paper were not involved. Consequently, although he's come up with a lot of great stuff over the years, Howard Hesman only has five writing credits on his IMDb profile. He was a credited writer on five episodes of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in 1968 and 69. He got a writing credit for that pilot of music scene. It's the one we talked about in The Doctor's Daughter, where Howard appeared in scenes with Mick Jagger. The writing credit on that one was really for his improv contributions. Same for his written-by credit on a 1969 committee documentary. This is the only episode of WKRP Howard Hessman ever wrote. Well, co-wrote with Stephen Campman. It also seems to be almost the only thing he ever wrote professionally where he committed to telling a story completely on paper. And one of our favorite actors from season one is back in this episode. The first season produced a number of memorable characters, funeral director Randall Ferryman, Little Ed, the wrestling preacher, but none funnier in our opinion than Del Murdoch from Del's Stereo and Sound. Ah, ah, ah. Del was created by funny man Hamilton Camp. Camp's committee connection with Howard Hessman was what helped to bring him in for his season one appearance. The committee connection. This time around, Hamilton was not the first choice for the role of Buddy Gravers. Howard Hessman said in America's favorite radio station, he'd written the part for John Matuzak. John Tooze Matuzak was a former defensive lineman for various NFL teams, most notably the Oakland Raiders for six years. He also started doing a little acting in the late 1970s. That's how he met Howard Hessman. A committee friend of Hessman's worked with Twos on the Ringo Starr movie Caveman in 1981. Hessman got to know him through the production, and he thought of Matuzak for this role as Buddy Gravers. 
Hessman wrote these scenes specifically for Ruth Silvera and Matuzak. Tuz was brought in to read for the part, and he was cast in the role. He made it until Monday night of production week. Following the Monday afternoon rehearsals, Howard Hessman said he had a talk with Hugh Wilson, and as much as he didn't want to, Hessman said he finally had to admit the material was out of Matuzak's range. He wasn't getting it. After they decided to cut Matuzak, Howard said, Hamilton. Hugh said, exactly what I was thinking. Hamilton Camp, the pro that he is, stepped into the role on Tuesday morning. Let's get into the episode. We're starting out in the studio, so it's time for a poster watch. Yay! Look closely under the window to the left of the studio door. The long-haired man with a mustache is Bob Seeger. We were certain this was Seeger, but couldn't tie the promo picture to an album. So we threw it to Hernandez. The accountant of rock found this pic of Bob in the inner sleeve of his 11th studio album, Against the Wind. If you missed Bob in the 1970s, you somehow avoided Beautiful Loser or Night Moves or Stranger in Town. Well, there was no way you could hide from this one. Against the Wind, released in February of 1980, was a monster. It went to number two on the Billboard album chart within three weeks of its release. It stayed stuck at number two, behind Pink Floyd's The Wall, for five weeks. Then it knocked The Wall out of first and took the top spot for six weeks. It had four huge single releases, Fire Lake, Against the Wind, and You'll Accompany Me were all top 20 hits. Against the wind We were running against the wind We were young and strong We were running against the wind The fourth single, the horizontal bop, Her Strut, would peak at number 42. This was only Seeger's fourth album with the Silver Bullet Band. Five of the tracks on the album were with the SBB. The other five are backed by the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. To the right of the studio door, that giant orange blob of flame and sparks is a promo poster for the new album from heavy metal rockers Crocus. This was their fifth studio album called Hardware, released in February of 1981. Nothing charted from this one, but we would like to mention the German single just because we love the name, Smelly Nelly. Crocus was formed in Switzerland in 1975. They would experience their greatest commercial success in the 1980s following the release of their 1982 album, One Vice at a Time. Crocus has been a revolving door of personnel over the years, and amazingly, they are still together. They tour regularly and were planning their final Adios Amigos tour in 2019 when the pandemic put things on hold. Although they are the hardest of hard rockers, their name has a gentle origin. The band name K-R-O-K-U-S is the German word for C-R-O-C-U-S, a common flower found throughout Europe. On the studio door all the way there at the bottom is a poster for the British band The Vapors. Thanks to Michael Hernandez, the accountant of rock, for identifying this one. 
The album was their debut called New Clear Days. It included the international smash Turning Japanese. Turning Japanese would go top 10 in Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, and the UK. It would hit number one in Australia. U.S., Turning Japanese would be a minor hit, barely breaking into the top 40. It peaked at number 36 in September of 1980. It is the Vapor's only charted single in the U.S. Let's get into the studio. Johnny's at the mic, and he's just finished playing an ad. Do me a favor, uh, buy this stuff wherever they sell it, okay? Johnny announces it's almost 10. Nesman News will be up in just a minute. He then announces he's out of there for the weekend as he starts Book of Love by the Monotones. Johnny picks up the phone and continues a conversation he'd started before he had to go on the air. Paul, I'm back. Les enters the studio. Do me a favor. Say it to me one more time. (laughs) Les looks at Johnny in surprise. (laughs) That's a great surprise. It's not the surprise? Listen, it'll do, okay? Polly, you've made me very, very happy. Yeah, I, I gotta run now. Uh, listen, thanks a lot and goodbye. And I love you, okay? And I love you, Mr. Phone. And I love you, Mr. Consul. And even KRP. Right now, I love Cincinnati. I love life. Les looks up from what he's been doing. Got another girl in trouble, John? <laughs> And now, a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Left thumb. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb Award-winning journalist, Les Nessman. Johnny tells Les, not really, his ex-wife is getting married. Which one? (laughs) Number one. You remember my daughter, Lori? Her mom. We met Lori in season two, episode number 20, The Doctor's Daughter. Johnny tells Les, after 12 years, he is free at last. Johnny's putting a copy of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy back in the album sleeve. Les tells Johnny he thought he was already divorced. Well, we are. I'm talking about alimony, Les. But my first wife doesn't gouge out of my paycheck. My second wife scrapes off. (laughs) I live on the residue. Johnny's playing Book of Love, the monster 1950s doo-wop hit by one-hit wonders, The Monotones. The song was written by three members of the Newark, New Jersey group. Lead singer Charles Patrick heard this Pepsodent toothpaste commercial. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. And he got this out of it. I wonder, wonder, who wrote the book of love? The boom in the hook. Has a fun origin. After they first wrote the song, the group was practicing it out in Patrick's parents' garage. A neighbor kid was kicking a ball against the side of the garage. The ball hit at just the right moment a few times, and they thought it sounded cool. They decided to recreate the sound for the final recording. 
Who wrote the book of love? Book of Love would go to number five on the Billboard Top 100 in March of 1958. Johnny is doing his happy dance because it means he will get out of paying alimony. Sure, we've all heard the word, but where did it come from? What does it mean? Glad you asked. Yeah. The term comes from the Latin word alimonia, which means nourishment or sustenance. It's from the same root as alimentary, like alimentary canal, referring to food or digestion. Alimony has been around a while. The Code of Hammurabi from 1754 B.C. says a man must provide sustenance to a woman who has borne him children so she can raise them. Modern alimony comes from English ecclesiastical courts. In cases of marital misconduct, these courts could grant a divorce, but technically by church law, the marriage didn't actually end. It was ongoing. Although the couple was divorced, the husband was expected to continue to support the wife in the same manner as when they were together. These awards almost always assumed the husband was at fault when it came to wrecking the marriage. Later, courts would consider the concept of fault. If the husband was at fault, he would have to pay the wife. If the wife was found to have been at fault for wrecking the marriage, she wouldn't get anything in the settlement. Since the 1970s, Thanks to a significant increase in the number of women in the workforce, U.S. alimony has eliminated gender bias. Who gets what is now determined by income instead of gender, which makes sense. Sure, I agree with it. Since the early 2000s, aggressive pursuit of spousal support by men has become more common as the stigma fades. That's right, guys. Go get yours. (laughs) Let's then share some advice with Johnny. Well, John, if you just must dance, you have to pay the piper. Johnny tells Les she's getting remarried. Les asks, to whom? I don't know. Maybe she caught Darth Vader in a vulnerable moment. (laughs) Doesn't make any difference. Mr. and Mrs. Hitler? Fine. Les is spraying some type of a cleaner on the console where Johnny just was. And it makes me think of Tornado and the Japanese businessmen and how they reacted to finding out yes. Johnny was a DJ and put on their mask. Ooh, disco jockey. Oh. So Les is sanitizing the area. Johnny tells Les he is out of there. He said no to a vacation, but now he says he has the money. Just as Johnny is about to open the door to the studio, Les asks... Are you sure she's getting married? Johnny tells Les she just told him she was getting married. I don't know this woman personally, John, but from what you've told me in the past, coupled with my intuitive newsman's instincts, I think she's gone completely insane. Johnny is shaking his head. Or perhaps you've already driven her mad and she's planning on killing someone. Johnny leans down closer to Les. If she was going to kill someone, she'd start with me. Les tells him (laughs) precisely it could be a setup. Remember where you heard it first, John. Johnny's not buying into Les's paranoid theories. He's going to go talk to Carlson. Les tells Johnny to be careful. It's a long walk from here to Carlson's office. (laughs) A lot of things can happen. Johnny rolls his eyes. We can see Bailey pass by the studio window. Johnny's looking at Les, so he doesn't see the studio door open. Bailey's on her way in. She bumps into Johnny, who's on his way out. (laughs) Johnny lets out a high-pitched yelp. (laughs) 
It's hard to imagine a world before Star Wars. Here, in April of 1981, the Skywalker saga was just starting to unfold, and Darth Vader would have been a topical reference. The original Star Wars, now known as Episode Four: A New Hope, had been released in May of 1977. The second film in the first trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back, had come out less than a year ago in May of 1980. Now, Darth Vader was a baddie in the first movie, but he really didn't have a true villain's presence just yet. If you compare screenshots, his first helmet was pretty dull. The Darth suit in the second movie was a gleaming black, and Darth Vader became a star, a villain among villains. Empire Strikes Back is widely regarded by both critics and fans as the best of the Star Wars movies and one of the best films of all time. Spoiler alert for Empire Strikes Back. You haven't seen it in the last 40 years. It's the one where, in the climactic scene, Darth reveals he is Luke's father. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. So as Johnny heads for Carlson's office, we head into our theme. WKRP in Cincinnati. We come back and we're in the hallway outside of the studio. And we find more posters. Yay! It's a hallway poster watch, but we'll keep this one short. There's a poster for the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, in the upper left of the hallway. This seems very out of place. It is one of the greatest albums ever made, but Sgt. Pepper's came out in 1967. Turns out, this was a Parlophone reissue. It's on vinyl in the original mono. No reason for it, no big anniversaries or anything, just Parlophone needing some cash. These were pressed from the original mono stamps of this legendary album and, according to the Parlophone hype, not available since the 60s. Ten years after they'd broken up and Parlophone is still squeezing bucks out of the Beatles. <laughs> Through the door at the far end of the hall, we can see a poster featuring Pink Floyd's iconic Dark Side of the Moon prism. This was a 1973 release for Pink Floyd, so again, like the Beatles, this is not a current poster. We didn't get a close-up look at it, and we weren't able to find this poster, but it really looks like a record company promo of the Pink Floyd catalog. Those little squares down in the lower third of the poster are most likely album covers. Pink Floyd had just come off the phenomenal success of last year's The Wall album in the middle of 1980, so it would make sense for the record company to hype their back catalog to new fans who just discovered the band through The Wall. And them 
right where we left off in the hallway outside the studio. The studio door is open and Bailey is backing out. Johnny's facing her, kind of pushing her out. Bailey, 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 I'm sorry you startled me. How's your cold? Bailey's up against the wall, looking a bit shocked. Bailey tells him her cold is better. Johnny then asks her where she's going on vacation. She says she's not sure and asks him why he wants to know. Well, uh, if you play your cards right, it could be a vacation for two. What are you suggesting, Fever? (laughs) So Johnny leans on the wall. He's got his forearm up next to Bailey's head. He leans in and goes into his sales pitch. This is some high-octane prose. I am suggesting palm trees swaying in the offshore trade wind. Mm. The hue and cry of exotic birds wheeling across an azure sky. I'm suggesting bronzed, supple flesh, pungent odors, sensuous rhythms in a tropical paradise. In short, Adam and Eve on excursion rates. Bailey asks if they will be alone together. Hopefully. And she asks if they will have separate bedrooms. Details, details. We can work this out. Where? Jamaica, island of homegrown fun. Johnny does a little hip swirl. He's waving his hands in the air as he says this. Well, this is all so sudden, I'll have to think about it. Is Bailey doing a Mae West growl? Yeah, she had a little bit of shoulder move in there, too. So Johnny wiggles his finger at her. Back now, don't delay, offer limited. Johnny heads for the door at the end of the hallway. Am I paying for this? Details, details. (laughs) Johnny's going biblical again. He's referenced parting the Red Sea in Nothing to Fear, but now he's mentioning the first man and first woman of Abrahamic religions. For Johnny's purposes, the two were, quite famously, naked. A lot of naked going on in Genesis. Check out the first five (laughs) chapters of Genesis in the Holy Bible for all the details. And no surprise, Johnny's headed to Jamaica. Jamaica is an island country situated in the Caribbean Sea. It's the third largest island in the Greater Antilles, behind Cuba and Hispaniola. Jamaica achieved independence from the United Kingdom on the 6th of August, 1962. When Johnny says they grow their own fun, we think he might be referring to ganja. Ganja is a strain of marijuana brought to the island in the late 1800s by indentured East Indians. Ganja is called wisdom weed by Rastafarians. They use it for religious rites. Ganja is also very popular with tourists. We transition to the lobby where we see Andy enter the lobby from the door that leads to the bullpen. Andy is wearing khaki-colored dress pants. With creases down the fronts of the legs. With a brown leather belt, a brown dress shirt, a cream-colored jacket, white dress shoes, and a gold chain around his neck. He looks very nice. He's being closely followed by Venus. Well, when will you be back? Well, I don't know, but it won't be long yet. You know I take my work seriously. Well, I got plans too, man. You gave me no notice. Well, I'm sorry, but it's a matter of life and death. Now, let's take a look at Venus's vibin' threads. Venus is wearing a black-collared, long-sleeved shirt tucked into purple pants. 
Over the black shirt, he's wearing a purple nylon capped-sleeved vest. The vest has a zipper pocket over the left breast. Above the zippered pocket, we see Venus's name embroidered in black. The zipper of the pocket is outlined with orange piping. There's also orange piping on the front of the purple vest. Now we get a long shot right here where these two are standing next to each other and they really reminded me of Sonny Crockett and Rico Tubbs from Miami Vice, especially Andy in that coat and the two of them the side by side. They may have been forerunners because Michael Mann did not produce Miami Vice until September of 1984. So he may have seen this scene and been inspired. Venus looks at Andy, and then he says he can cancel. But what am I supposed to do until four? Andy tells Venus to just relax and pretend he knows what he's doing. Believe me, no one will know the difference. Andy heads to the door of the lobby. Venus grabs his arm and pulls. Wait a minute. Andy turns a bit unhappy about being manhandled. Johnny enters the lobby, and he asks Jennifer if Art's busy. She laughs. Art? Busy? She said he's in with Herb. Johnny walks over to Andy and tells him he needs help with Mr. Carlson. Andy directs Johnny to Venus because he has to go. Where are you going? Andy looks pleadingly at Johnny and Venus. He really wants out of there. And he seems to be really dressed up. He's not in jeans. Right. Well, it's a long story involving a promo rep who's having some trouble. Look, I'm late already. I'll explain later. Venus goes to the door. He points and yells after Andy. You're not back in four hours. I'm going all Christmas music. Think about it. I mean it. (laughs) Jennifer walks to her desk, stirring her cup of coffee. She shares what she knows. Apparently, she's new in town and new on the job and very nervous. At least that's what Andy said. Venus and Johnny look at Jennifer. I suppose she's young. Uh-huh. Good looking. Uh-huh. Andy said he thought if he could help her to relax and feel better, it would score points for the station. Jennifer is sticking out her lips in a pouty way as she says this. <laughs> the voice she is doing is great. Johnny and Venus look at each other. Aww. That's so nice of Andy to be professionally mentoring this He's young promo woman. Yeah, get used to yeah. The area. So Venus begins heading to the bullpen when Johnny stops him. He tells Venus he needs his help. I told Carlson last week I didn't want a vacation. Now I want one starting Monday. Venus says he can't lend Johnny any money. <laughs> well, Johnny claims he's got the money. What he needs is the vacation. Now you're going to back me up on this against Carlson? Where were you when Chicago Watson Selma was going down, huh? Trap! I wanted to be there, man. I couldn't get connecting flights. Venus looks at Johnny. He's got kind of a confused expression on his face. Venus mentioned three major civil rights events from the 1960s. The march from Selma took place in March of 1965. It was actually three major marches along the 54-mile highway from Selma, Alabama, to the state capital of Montgomery. For a great look at the Selma marches, check out the 2014 historical drama, Selma. Venus also mentioned Chicago. Chicago was the site of several racially motivated riots in the 1960s. He could be referencing the 1966 West Side riots, the 1968 riots following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., or the Bussy riots associated with the 1968 Democratic National Convention. If you had a picket sign and a gripe, 
Chicago was the place to be in the 1960s. The third event on Venus's list was Watts. The Watts riots are also sometimes known as the Watts Rebellion or Watts Uprising. The riots took place in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles in August of 1965. Fueled by rumors and allegations of police abuse, the Watts riots lasted for six days. Nearly 14,000 California National Guard troops were called in to calm the disturbance. When it was all over, there were 34 deaths and more than $40 million in property damages. The Watts riots would be the worst in Los Angeles history until the 1992 Rodney King riots. We cut into Art's office where we see Mr. Carlson sitting at his desk. Herb is seated in a chair that he has pulled up next to Art on the same side of the desk. He's always sitting on the same side as Mr. Carlson. So Art has a handful of pencils, and he's tossing them one at a time into the pencil holder on his desk as Herb is talking about his latest scheme. You make money, I make money, and no one knows the difference. And just what is Herb talking about? He's smiling, (laughs) waiting for a response from the big guy when the door opens. Venus and Johnny enter. Uh, AC, you got a minute? Art tells him, sure. He continues to toss pencils. We see one fly by in the foreground (laughs) as the camera is on Johnny. Venus takes a seat on the couch behind Johnny. I know I told you last week that I couldn't afford a vacation, and you graciously agreed, and I appreciate your concern for my continued well-being, and with that in mind, I'd like to leave Monday, if it's okay with you. Mr. Carlson tells Johnny this is a matter that he probably should take up with Travis. Johnny tells Mr. Carlson that Travis is not here. Mr. Carlson asks where he is. Out of the station on business. Business? Mr. Carlson looks at them and asks, what happens if some major decision needs to be made? (laughs) What then? On target, big guy. Yeah, what then? Venus reminds Mr. Carlson. Hey, see, when Travis is gone, I'm acting PD. Mr. Carlson looks relieved. Okay, what do you think, Venus? Venus stands up and addresses the group. Well, I thought this thing through thoroughly. Hey, who's kidding who? I've lost a lot of sleep over it. (laughs) Venus is quoting Mr. Carlson. He used almost the same line in Bailey's Big Break. I've given this a lot of thought. (laughs) Really struggled with this one. Hey, who's getting whom? I lost weight over it. Johnny is watching Venus closely. Fever here hasn't had a vacation in five years. I think he should take it. Johnny nods his head. Okay. That's a good decision. (laughs) Herb nods in agreement with Art. Art says he agrees. Everybody's agreeing. Go ahead, Fever. Take off. It's okay with us. Oh, and when Herb stands up, it's It's time. time. Herb Darling. Fashion alert. Herb is wearing a cream-colored suit. The jacket and the pants have a matching plaid pattern with shades of light brown and teal. He's wearing a white dress shirt with a dark brown, blue, and white diagonal striped tie, white shoes, and white belt. On target, big guy. Johnny excitedly begins to leave the room, saying he needs to make some travel plans and fast. Herb stops Johnny and asks who his travel agent is. Johnny tells Herb he doesn't need a travel agent. Come on, get in the 80s. Everyone needs a travel agent. Look, think seven words. Herb stops and you can see him recalculating in his head. No. Think nine words. Jimmy the Gent Tartaglianos, Bon Voyage, House of Travel. (laughs) Johnny doesn't feel real sure about this. It's a trade-out, John. You're going to save 30%. (laughs) 
Who am I kidding? 40% over booking it yourself. Venus is skeptical. 40%? Yes, sir. Well, Johnny's convinced. Okay, do it. <laughs> and you know what Jimmy the Gent reminds me of? I remember Ray Liotta and Goodfellas introducing the guys on the crew. And then there was Mo Black's brother, Fat Andy. And his guys, Frankie the Wop. Freddie No Nose. And then there was Pete the Killer, who was Sally Balls' brother. Looking at it more closely, this might actually be a reference to Goodfellas a full nine years before Goodfellas would hit theaters. Robert De Niro plays Jimmy the Gent Conway in the movie. He's playing real gangster Jimmy the Gent Burke, who was a Lucchese crime family associate. Jimmy was all over the news right about this time. He'd been arrested for a parole violation in 1980 and would be sentenced for college basketball point shaving based on Henry Hill's testimony in 1982. This seems to be a ripped-from-the-headlines topical joke. The real Jimmy the Gent died in prison in 1996 at the age of 64, and as far as we know, he never ran a travel agency. Jimmy the Gent Tartagliano's Bon Voyage House of Travel. So Herb loves those trades, and so do advertisers. We've mentioned trade-outs before. A trade simply means an advertiser is paying for advertising with products or services. It's a bonus for the advertiser because they get the full retail value of whatever they're trading back as advertising. The station or the account rep loves a trade because they're getting stuff instead of cash. Stuff doesn't show up as easily on a tax return. It's supposed to, but it usually doesn't. I had a flooring account who'd put carpet in every radio station in town, and all of it was traded out for spots. As soon as a trade would run out, he'd install more carpet or flooring, and some <laughs> of that flooring even wound up in the homes of the GMs and the PDs. Bonus. Yeah. Herb takes a sheet of paper and a pencil from Mr. Carlson's desk, and he asks Johnny how, when, and where. Monday, Jamaica, Lodestone of the Caribbean. All right, now hold on a sec. Lodestone? We tried to find Johnny's Jamaican nickname. The only place we could find it was as the title of a 1924 book written by E.M. Cook. It was called Jamaica, Lodestone of the Caribbean. It was written by a middle-aged lady who had been born in Jamaica, then returned to visit many years later. It is considered a valuable text about the history of Jamaica. Her book title is the only place we found a reference to that particular nickname. Okay, so what is a lodestone? I was hoping you'd ask. It has two <laughs> meanings. First, it's a naturally magnetized metal. We don't think that has anything to do with Jamaica. The second is probably the definition being used to describe Jamaica. A lodestone is the thing that is the focus of attention or attraction. Jamaica, lodestone of the Caribbean. Herb tells Johnny that might be tough because it is Friday. He says he'll do the best he can, but asks Johnny for a backup. Second choice, anything that's south of here and sounds exotic, isolated, and untouched. Herb heads out of the office when Johnny adds... And Herb, yeah, you better make it two tickets, okay? Two tickets, check. Johnny looks at Venus and raises his eyebrows a couple of times. Herb heads out on his mission, and Venus heads to Andy's office to find the list of names to sub for Johnny. Johnny turns to Mr. Carlson. I, I know this is really short notice. Thanks. 
The door to Carlson's office opens and Jennifer enters. There is a man following her. They come into the office. John, there's a Mr. Buddy Gravers here to see you. Buddy walks in, looks up at Jennifer. Jenny. Jennifer. (laughs) Buddy turns to Jennifer. He snaps his fingers and points at her. Jennifer. Buddy eyes Jennifer up and down and makes a clicking sound with his mouth as Jennifer leaves, closing the door. And Buddy has quickly established himself as sleazier than Herb. (laughs) We can tell by looking at Buddy, this isn't going to be good for Johnny. Buddy is wearing a brown leather jacket with a polo shirt, the shirt's collar out over the collar of the jacket. He's got a pair of aviator sunglasses with bluish purple lenses hanging from the center of the shirt, which is unbuttoned all the way down. (laughs) He just has that I'm so much cooler than all of you look about him. Buddy Gravers is being played by the multi-talented comedian, singer, songwriter, actor, and improver Hamilton Camp. We love Hamilton Camp, and we did an extensive bio on him in season one's Hold Up. Make sure to check out that episode of the podcast. Hamilton was a committee member with Howard Hessman and a force in 70s TV. We love his work, and we are so glad to see him back on this episode. Buddy greets Johnny with a thumb-grasp handshake. He also punches Johnny in his right (laughs) arm, and he's smiling. Johnny. Buddy. Johnny. Buddy. Johnny introduces Buddy to Mr. Carlson, and... Buddy greets him the same way with that handshake and an arm punch. The grabbing punch seems to be Buddy's thing. <laughs> buddy, uh, Arthur, Arthur, Buddy. <laughs> buddy? Artie. Oh. <laughs> Mr. Carlson rubs his arm and asks Buddy what brought him here. Uh, my Learjet. Buddy pulls a business card out of his pocket. I'm a charter pilot. Have my own company. Buddy hands the business card to Mr. Carlson. Buddy tells them he has many planes, large and small. Mr. Carlson asks what they can do for him. Buddy mentioned he's flying Lear jets. Learjet used to be the world leader in private luxury jet aircraft. The company was founded by Wichita native Bill Lear in Switzerland in the late 1950s as Swiss American Aviation. Lear based the company in Switzerland because he was planning to use the design of a Swiss military jet as the basis for his business aircraft. Also, he said the labor costs were a whole lot cheaper in Switzerland. Although construction of the first jet started in Switzerland, Bill moved the company to Wichita, Kansas in 1962. He said even though labor costs were cheaper in Switzerland, getting anything done took forever. The company name was changed to Learjet, all one word, and assembly of the first Learjet took place in Wichita on February 7th, of 1963. The first Model 23s sold for $495,000 in 1963, about $4.5 million in 2022 dollars. Both Frank Sinatra and Danny Kaye bought one. Learjet was acquired by Bombardier Aerospace in 1990. In 2021, Bombardier announced the end of all new Learjet production. But fear not, Learjet owners. They will continue to service your Learjet currently in use. Neither Johnny nor Art knows this weird little man or what he wants. 
but he turns to Johnny, looking him in the eyes. Get to know me. Johnny looks at him, and he's more confused than ever. Get to know me. Look, I was flying a client in, and Paula decided to surprise you and fly in with me. Johnny has a spark of recognition. Paula? Your ex, my bride-to-be. Buddy. Johnny! They grab each other's upper arms and then begin play-punching each other. They stop to look at each other. Their laughter subsides, and then they turn to look at Art. He's standing there tapping a pencil on his desk as he smiles at them. Well, I guess you two have got a lot to you know talk about. Yeah. Yeah. The three of them just keep standing there, awkwardly smiling and nodding. I, I, I've certainly got a lot of work to do today. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be in my office uh, if you need me, John. <laughs> Art is really trying to get these guys to leave his office. He's chuckling. He pauses a second. They don't move. <laughs> Giving up, he tosses the pencil onto his desk and he leaves his own office. Johnny welcomes Buddy to WKRP, motioning to Mr. Carlson's chair. He tells him to sit. Johnny asks Buddy if he'd like a drink. I know I could use one. Buddy says, eh, maybe later. Buddy says that Paula has told him a lot about Johnny. Johnny asks where Paula is. Paula who? Johnny gives Buddy a questioning look. <laughs> Buddy again hits Johnny on the upper arm and then adds... Humor. Buddy explains he was doing some business with a company and Paula got tired of waiting. So I gave her a charge card and sent her forth. I was supposed to meet her in an hour. Right here. Where where the heck is she? Surprise, Paula's late. Buddy tells Johnny, actually, he's early. So Johnny asks Buddy what he'd like to do while they wait for Paula. He asked maybe if Buddy'd like a tour of the station. What I'd like to do is take a tour of that receptionist, you know. <laughs> oh, Buddy laughs, winking at Johnny. Jennifer? Is that twin engine on the firing line or what? <laughs> well, not exactly. Hey, hey, okay, I get it. Signs out, hands off, no touching the looky. <laughs> <laughs> he laughs again and pokes Johnny in his ribs. Johnny's trying to talk, but Buddy is just railroading him, and he's making all kinds of assumptions. Don't explain! We're both men of the world. We can't help it if these beautiful women keep throwing themselves at us, huh? (laughs) Buddy punches Johnny in the arm again. Howard Hessman had to have been bruised after a week of rehearsals and then two shooting sessions with Hamilton punching him in the arm. He's like a punching bag. Yeah, and it's continuous throughout. Johnny shakes his head. It's just if you're going to marry a woman like Paula. Straighten up and fly right. Listen, I may be stupid, but I'm no amateur. And I've been married before. Of course, those two didn't work longer than six months. (laughs) This is different. Johnny tells Buddy he's glad to hear him say that. Buddy assures Johnny he loves Paula very much. I know she's crazy about me. No offense. No! But he says he's one heck of a lucky guy. He snaps his fingers and he claps his hands, hitting Johnny on the arm again. He says... Let's go buzz that blonde. Well, buddy. Hey, <laughs> no harm in looking, Hey, Come on. Old habits die hard. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> so Buddy has his arm around Johnny's waist, moving him to the door. He hits Johnny in the arm one more time before opening the door. Humor. Buddy opens the door and he walks out into the lobby. Hey, baby. Hi, darling. Googie. Mm. 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 
Paula has arrived. She is a good head taller than Buddy, and she has to bend down to kiss him. Johnny and Paula see each other. Hi, Paula. Hi, John. Surprised. Stunned. They stand for a bit, looking at each other, and Buddy tells Paula he missed her. She apologizes for being late and tells Buddy she hopes he wasn't bored. I think Buddy has a good time wherever he is. (laughs) (laughs) What's that supposed to mean? Nothing. How's Lori? Paula tells Johnny Lori is fine. Still in school. Johnny says, yeah, he read that in her last letter from a couple of weeks ago. Paula is being played by Ruth Silvera. This is Ruth's only appearance on WKRP, but she is among friends. We haven't used this one in a while. The Committee Connection. Ruth was a member of groundbreaking San Francisco improv troupe The Committee. She worked with Howard Hessman, Richard Stahl, Dan Barrows, Julie Payne, Gary Goudreau, Catherine Ish, Hamilton Camp, and several more folks who would also show up on WKRP. Ruth's SAG acting career began with the 1970 movie The Strawberry Statement. Ruth has worked regularly over the years, but not a lot. She's racked up 54 acting credits in 52 years. She currently has a project in post-production. Ruth has done a number of TV and theatrical movies. As a TV guest star, she's worked on both hours and half hours, picking up spots on shows like Little House on the Prairie, Hill Street Blues, Empty Nest, and Growing Pains. Interesting item on Paula's resume. She's the woman in the glasses playing Waldo's mom at the beginning of Van Halen's 1984 Hot for Teacher video. Now, Waldo, I hope you find some friends this year. (laughs) Oh, Mom, you know I'm not like other guys. I'm nervous and my socks are too loose. Sit down, Waldo. Jennifer stands to leave, but Buddy grabs her arm, leading her back in. Hey, little lady, no, you be in a hurry to get out of here. Just a second, Paula, did you know that Jennifer and John were sweet tarts? Jennifer looks at Johnny. I'm afraid there's been some mistake. Oh, not if you haven't married him yet. (laughs) That's a good line. Maybe not line of the episode, but that's a good line. (laughs) There's awkward, nervous laughter all around. Johnny suggests lunch. Well, I'm hungry. Why don't the four of us go chow down someplace together? Get to know me better? (laughs) Buddy winks. Jennifer tries to decline lunch. She's also not thrilled with the term chow down. (laughs) Hey, look, we're only going to be in town for the day. Bailey enters the lobby and she sees the four of them talking. She checks her messages on Jennifer's desk as she listens in. Buddy tells them the ladies must have a lot to talk about. John and I are hitting it off real great. Let's get acquainted. Who knows, maybe this time next year we'll jump into one of my planes, sky off to Niagara Falls for a little vacation. Let's get it started. Buddy lightly hits Jennifer on the arm and winks. Jennifer looks at Johnny. (laughs) Johnny. Ah, please, darling. It'll be fun. Oh, she wants out of this. Johnny's trying to convince Jennifer to go along. Now, Buddy mentioned Niagara Falls as a spot for the two couples to visit. The Niagara Falls are an amazing spectacle, an incredible source of hydroelectric power, catnip for daredevils, and the falls have been the honeymoon capital of the world for more than 200 years. 
Niagara hosted its first honeymooners in 1801. Theodosia Burr, daughter of future Vice President Aaron Burr, and her new husband Joseph Alston visited the falls with a number of servants and nine pack horses. Three years later, high society newlyweds Jerome Bonaparte, younger brother of Napoleon, and his bride Elizabeth Patterson also spent their honeymoon at the falls. A new social custom was born for the wealthy. By 1825, when the Erie Canal opened on the U.S. side of the border, the falls were then accessible to middle-class lovers. Introduction of rail lines to the area made honeymooning at Niagara Falls so popular, an 1841 song called My Niagara Falls Honeymoon became Song of the Year. We couldn't find a performance of it, but we did find some lyrics. So check this verse. See Niagara's waters rolling. See the misty spray. See the happy lovers strolling. It's It's everybody's everybody's wedding wedding day. day. Song of the Year, 1841. Jennifer tells them it all really does sound intriguing, but she shouldn't leave her desk. Oh, I'll cover for you. (laughs) Bailey is smiling at Jennifer, and Jennifer glares at (laughs) Bailey. Thank you, Bailey. Jennifer and Paula head out the door. Now, we were a bit surprised that Jennifer would consent to this weird lunch date. Jennifer is a strong woman. It would not be out of character for her to have a seat at her desk and just refuse to go. Nobody ever gets me to do anything. (laughs) But then we thought, could this be payback? Johnny was really pleading there. And if you remember in season one's I Do, I Do for Now, Johnny did almost exactly the same thing for Jennifer. He posed as her fiancé in order to discourage Hoyt Axton from making good on a childhood promise. Wait a minute, I'm the chips. (laughs) Maybe Jennifer is helping Johnny as a way to repay him for his earlier good deed. Then again, they maybe didn't even think about that at all and just decided they wanted Jennifer to go on this date. Bailey catches Johnny before he leaves the lobby. I was thinking, um, is your offer still on for Jamaica? I wish we were in the air right now. But he comes over and puts his arm around Johnny. Her too? You (laughs) sly sucker! But he punches Johnny in the arm and with his arm around Johnny's waist pulls him close and roughly ushers him out the door. Bruises all over (laughs) Howard Hessman's arm. Humor. We come back from commercial break to the inside of a small restaurant. It's completely empty. Johnny, Paula, Jennifer, and Buddy enter. This is your favorite restaurant? Paula's looking around, kind of making a face. Johnny tells her yes. He says they do most of their business at night. Should we just sit? Johnny tells him sure. How about here? Johnny gestures to a round table, the only table in the center of the room. Looks like a table to me. Buddy laughs, and they all have a seat. Johnny mentions that he normally visits this place at night. He may be hinting at the weird hours some DJs adopt as part of the job. Johnny's on every morning at 6 a.m. This means he probably needs to be up and going by about 4 a.m., if not earlier. If you're waking up at 4 a.m., you'd want to go to bed by 8 p.m. Going to bed that early means you'd have no social life. You can't even watch the late news. Some morning DJs deal with these weird time shifts by treating daytime as nighttime. Johnny's mentioned going home to sleep the day away. That's not an uncommon sleep pattern for a morning DJ. If he's sleeping from about 11 in the morning until 7 or 8 p.m., he's getting in plenty of sleep for a 24-hour cycle, and he's sleeping when everyone else is at work so he doesn't miss anything. 
He gets up for the evening and he can go out, hang with friends, party. He has his social time. Then he might hit an all-night restaurant at 4 or 5 in the morning for dinner before he goes into work. We're betting this is how Johnny works his days and how he knows Abdul. No one comes out to welcome them once they've sat down at the table. I think they're closed. Which kind of makes us guilty of breaking an entry, John. <laughs> Buddy and Johnny laugh. They continue to sit in uncomfortable silence. Finally, Johnny speaks. So, you two are getting married. Oh, I bet you booty. <laughs> I think it's great because the worst thing about not being married is the loneliness. Yeah. Right, Jennifer? Jennifer looks at Johnny. Loneliness? Johnny is nodding and looking at her. Yes, it's the loneliness. Buddy looks at Jennifer. You're lonely? <laughs> well, I'm with her most of the time. Yes, I'm lonely. Johnny looks at Buddy and Paula. Well, what about kids? Uh, you think about having kids? Before either can answer, a woman comes out from the kitchen. She's wearing an apron and drying her hands on a towel. She sees them sitting at the table and jumps in surprise. Johnny walks over to the woman. It's okay, we're customers. You must be Abdul's wife. Johnny, I come here often at night. Uh, Abdul speaks fluent English. I guess he's not here in the daytime. Um, why don't we start with something special? Uh, champagne? Good, sounds good. Fine. Uh, cold champagne, champagne, champagne. Uh, cold champagne. <laughs> Johnny is pantomiming cold and drinking and champagne. I don't know what he's doing there. Something over his face to the woman. <laughs> drinking with both hands. With both hands yeah. around the glass. A yeah. huge glass. <laughs> oh! The woman runs back into the kitchen. Johnny goes and sits back at the table. He asks Buddy and Paula how they met. Abdul's wife is being played by Naomi Saratoff. The season three policy of hiring newbies continues. This is Naomi's first ever acting credit. Her IMDb profile tells us nothing about Naomi, except for listing her 16 acting credits. Naomi is not strictly a comic actress. After WKRP, she did single episodes of dramatic hours like ER, Dallas, Knott's Landing, and Hunter. Her last listed appearance was in 2007. She was on an episode of Scrubs playing Old Woman. We have no way of knowing if this is accurate, and it seems kind of hard to believe, but according to website Net Worth Post, Naomi's net worth in 2022 is $11 million. Either she invested well, or she's doing something other than acting. Oh! But he says he and Paula met in a supermarket. They were reaching for the same bag of Oreo cookies. I know you get a kick out of that because she <laughs> said you can never get into bed without your bag of Oreo cookies. Paula looks at Jennifer, smiling. She asks... Does he still do that? Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer is terrified. She looks like a deer in the headlights. Why, yes, he does. <laughs> Buddy mentioned Oreo cookies. Oreos are the best-selling cookie in the world. And I know we have several packages in mm -hmm. our pantry. They were first manufactured as the Oreo Biscuit in 1912. The National Biscuit Company, later renamed Nabisco, was trying to make a cookie to compete with 1908's Hydrox sandwich cookies. That's right. Hydrox was first. Oreo was the knockoff. Oreo won that contest big time. 
These days, Oreo sells about 34 billion cookies annually, or right at 92 million a day. Now, I've had Hydrox and I've had Oreo, and I do like Oreo better, but how are they, really, what is the difference? I'm not sure. Well, we get the double and triple cream now. They've played with the cream more in the Oreo. The Hydrox, to me, the cookie is a little crispier. Yeah. It's a little harder. Well, it's thinner, I think. Yeah, a little thinner, thinner. too. There's slight differences to them, but they're very similar. But everybody always thinks that the Hydrox are the knockoff to the Oreo these days. And it's the other way around. Yeah, and it's really the other way around. So Mondelez International purchased Oreo in 2012 and started playing with different flavors. Since then, more than 50 different Oreo flavors have been introduced, many very weird and for only a short time. (laughs) They made both wasabi and hot chicken wing Oreos for the Chinese market. Yeah. For Easter, they make both a Peeps and an Easter egg-flavored variety. I don't know what the Easter egg would taste like. I get the Peeps. Or do you think it's just different colored creams? I can't imagine an They're egg, also flavored. Egg fla- They're flavored huh, as well. Okay. In the summer of 2013, they tried the ill-fated watermelon-flavored Oreo. Wah, wah. Yeah, it was as bad as you're imagining, and it did not last very long. The most inventive Oreo flavor, the one that made me crack up, would have to be the fireworks version. Fireworks contains Pop Rocks mixed into the cream. (laughs) It's usually available in the U.S. around the 4th of July. And I don't ever remember seeing it, but that's okay. we got to look for it. This year we're looking for fireworks. I want to try one. Jennifer decides it's time to make an escape. She stands, saying she needs to get back to the station. Does he still do that me, Tarzan, you, Jane, routine? (laughs) Jennifer looks at Johnny. You wore costumes? Well, I lost my loincloth years ago. Johnny tells everyone, yes, Jennifer does need to be getting back. Paula asks why, which brings us to... The line of the episode... Our monkey's been ill. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask for any explanation. We don't know what she means, but it's just funny. Johnny walks her to the door of the restaurant. Thanks a lot, sweetheart. (laughs) Johnny puckers up for a kiss, leans forward, and kisses the air. Jennifer is long gone. You're a heck of a lucky guy, John. Oh, I think you're the lucky guy here, buddy. (laughs) Right, Paula? Paula is staring at Johnny. Buddy is wound up. Hey, let's face it, all four of us are lucky. Yeah. Look, let's the four of us later go on out and paint Cincinnati red. Come on, we'll burn this town to the ground. They'll never know what hit him. Paula takes Buddy's arm, trying to get his attention. Paula tells Buddy she has a request. I'd like a few moments alone with Johnny. Buddy says he'll see her back at the hotel. Buddy stands up and Johnny stands to face him. John. Buddy has his arms out. Buddy. Johnny reaches over and punches Buddy in the arm hard. <laughs> Payback. Buddy laughs and grabs Johnny giving him a big bear hug. Hey you! Looking forward to spending a lot more time with you next time, bud. Hey, and uh, say goodbye to Jennifer for me. Buddy pokes Johnny in the chest with quite a bit of force. You have a nice time in Jamaica. Here's <laughs> Buddy punches Johnny on the arm, then hits him on the back as he takes off out the door. Oh, I bet Howard Hussman was happy to see him go. That all goes really fast, too. It does, man. It's like, bam, pow. Punch, slap, out the door. (laughs) So Johnny sits back down at the table with Paula. I don't know what to say, Paula. I mean, he he, he is one hell of a guy. Paula agrees. She tells Johnny 
Jennifer seems nice. Is it serious? Johnny tells her no. So Paula asks why Johnny brought her along. Well, I just thought you might enjoy meeting some people I hardly know. Abdul's wife backs out of the kitchen, rolling a cart full of food over to the table. She begins unloading the cart, putting it all on the table between Johnny and Paula. Not a champagne (laughs) bottle in sight. When the cart is empty, she goes back into the kitchen. Johnny takes Paula's bowl, and he begins to ladle soup into it. So Johnny's burr and two-handed drinking pantomime got him cold soup, not champagne. (laughs) He's ladling out some kind of a gazpacho or maybe a cold cucumber soup, but we kind of got to look at it. It had a reddish tint, so probably some kind of gazpacho. Why are you pitching this marriage so hard? You really like him? Johnny tells her he thinks Buddy is great. Oh, you wouldn't care if I were marrying Hitler, would you? <laughs> a callback to the cold open. Mr. and Mrs. Hitler? Fine. Paula tells Johnny to tell the truth. Johnny says he is telling the truth. Come on. You want to get out of the alimony. How can you say that? Paula says she knows Buddy's been married before. Great. It seems to agree he, with him. He uh, looks at other women. Well, everybody does. Well, he's killed some people. How many? <laughs> Paula looks at Johnny and does a little laugh. You can't be straight with me, can you? No. Takes too much practice. Paula says Johnny's jealous. Jealous of Buddy? She says she can see it in his face. Paula goes on to say Buddy has made something of himself. He built that charter service from scratch. He loves me. He loves Lori. He wants to marry me. Admit it. It bothers you. Johnny tells her that's not what bothers him about Buddy. Paula asks him, what then? Well, he's goofy. (laughs) (laughs) He's goofy? You got some nerve? After 12 years of being a responsible single parent, I need a lot of Goofy. And he makes me laugh. Johnny tells Paula he likes the guy, but he's hesitant. He doesn't know if it will work or not. I just don't want to see you make the same mistake with him that you made with me. You don't like him, do you? Johnny tells Paula he's not talking about Buddy. He's talking about her, what she wants, what she deserves. Paula, you're an incredible incredible, extraordinary woman. You've got a great mind and great legs. And... Well, I don't think you should marry somebody just because they want to marry you. Paula gets his serious look on her face and tells Johnny maybe he's right. Maybe we should just live together. Well, maybe you should. See how it goes. You'd still have to pay alimony. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> so Paula tells Johnny she's really confused now. Johnny says he doesn't know what she wants. He's just trying to give her the straightest advice that he can. Paula doesn't want advice from Johnny. What do you want? Well, I'll tell you what I don't want. I don't want to see my former husband drooling over the prospect of my remarrying. Johnny asks why she didn't just say so. Paula admits she didn't know it until now. I guess I'd like you to feel a little sad. I am a little sad. He's great in bed. I said I'm sad. (laughs) Paula looks at Johnny for a long moment. I am too. So here we are, sad in Cincinnati. (laughs) Paula tells Johnny she wanted him and Buddy to meet. And I needed to know it was over between us. It's over. I know. Johnny offers to walk her back to her hotel, but Paula says no, although she'd better go. But he gets a little goofy if he's left alone for a while. <laughs> I'll bet. Johnny, 
I am going to marry him. Johnny leans towards her as if he's going to kiss her on the cheek, but they wind up in a pretty serious kiss on the lips, wrapping their arms around each other, getting close. You got to hang out for a couple of days, have a little fling before you tie the knot. (laughs) Paula smiles and chuckles. Oh, that's perfect. (laughs) Thank you for that. Paula tells Johnny goodbye, and she heads to the door. She's almost to the door when Johnny says, Thank you. Paula turns and asks him, For what? Lori, you did raise our daughter yourself. I wasn't there. I chose not to be there. You did the job of two people, and you did it very well. I'm proud of her, and I'm I'm really proud of you. Johnny lifts a bowl of soup to Paula as if toasting her. Paula comes back to the table and lifts her bowl. They clink bowls and take a drink of soup. Johnny has soup all over his mustache. Paula laughs, takes a napkin, and wipes his mouth and mustache. Handing the napkin to Johnny, she quickly walks out. Johnny plops down in his chair as Abdul's wife comes back out of the kitchen. Johnny looks at the woman, and lifting his bowl, he says, Tell you what, sweetheart, why don't you bring me another one of these? Make it a double. Johnny takes a swig from the bull as we head to commercial. We come back to the bullpen for our capper scene. There's a missing song here we want to point out. Had you been listening in April of 1981, you'd have heard the song We Just Disagree by Dave Mason playing on the bullpen monitor. It plays throughout the entire scene. Here's a sample of how it sounded from the Big D Dale Kovar's set of recreated discs. Tarlick, if this is your idea of a second choice, prepare to die. Oh, are these the tickets? Uh, yes and no. Instead of replacing the song with something else, Shout Factory decided to do another muting. This is also how they dealt with the U2 I Will Follow cut from Out to Lunch. Since it's not an on-air or introduced song... All they have to do is run the scene without any background music, and we don't know anything's missing. Johnny is at the DJ's desk. He unfolds some papers and looks at them. Tarlick, if this is your idea of a second choice, prepare to die! (laughs) Bailey enters from the studio hallway. Oh, are these the tickets? Uh, yes and no. Bailey looks at the tickets, then at Johnny. Oh, Johnny. If this is your idea of a dream vacation for two, you are a very silly boy. Bailey tosses the tickets back onto the DJ's desk and walks toward her desk. We Just Disagree is a solo effort from British guitarist and singer-songwriter Dave Mason. Mason first came to fame with the band Traffic in the 1960s. One of his biggest hits, Feeling All Right, was recorded by Traffic and later by Joe Cocker. This track, We Just Disagree, would be Mason's most successful solo effort. We Just Disagree was released in August of 1977. So let's leave it alone Cause we can't see eye to eye There ain't no good guy There ain't no bad guy There's only you and me and we just disagree peak at number 12 on the U.S. Hot 100 in September, and it will also hit number 14 in Canada. Dave Mason was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004 as a founding member 
of traffic. Les comes into the bullpen behind Bailey. And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nesman. This is the Les Nesman Bandage Report. Now here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nesman. Left thumb. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cobb award-winning journalist Les Nesman. Johnny runs after Bailey. He tells her it's not too late. We can change the tickets. We can go somewhere else. Laughing, Bailey tells him he can do that. For me? I'm going home to my folks. Bailey walks out the main door, letting it swing shut behind her, hitting Johnny. Well, what am I supposed to do with the extra ticket? Les has picked up the ticket and is looking at it. Ooh, Nebraska. (laughs) I'd love to go to Omaha. One of our nation's leading pork packing centers. <laughs> that that ought to be Nebraska's tourism slogan. Ooh, Nebraska. <laughs> Only with Les's voice with doing Les's it. Voice. <laughs> Ooh, Nebraska. So let's let's so Les is going nuts over Nebraska's largest city and the 39th largest city in the United States. Omaha was founded in 1854. Les is right. Omaha's stockyards were once considered the world's largest, and its meatpacking plants are internationally known. These days, Omaha is famous as the headquarters of Berkshire Hathaway, owned by sometime richest man in the world and Omaha native, Warren Buffett. Omaha also boasts the invention of the pink hair curler, created by Omaha's tip-top plastics, butterbrickle ice cream, and the Reuben sandwich. Johnny will truly hate Omaha because it's also where Top 40 Radio was created. Todd Stores of Stores Broadcasting introduced the Top 40 concept on KOWH Radio in the late 1950s. Johnny takes off his glasses and has a seat on the couch rubbing his temples. Rain there is so level, so flat, so relaxing. <laughs> so flat, so relaxing. <laughs> Les sits down next to Johnny. I've often fantasized about going there. Johnny turns to look at Les just unbelievingly. It would be like a dream come true. (laughs) Les turns full on to look at Johnny. He's begging. Oh, take me, John. Take me. Johnny puts his glasses back on and stares straight ahead as the screen goes to black. Do you think Johnny takes him? <laughs> I think so. Or maybe gives him the two tickets and Les can tickets. go with his mom or let's something. Go, let, let's go with somebody else that's into meatpacking. Remember Johnny's directive to Herb as a second choice if he couldn't get Jamaica? He said it had to be south of here and exotic. So maybe Les considers Omaha exotic, <laughs> but it is not south of Cincy. Cincinnati sits at 39 degrees latitude, where Omaha sits at 41 degrees latitude, a full two degrees further north than Cincinnati. The big takeaway here, don't rely on Herb for your travel plans. Or Jimmy the Gent. Right. Well, neither one. I didn't have to see this happen to know not to rely on Herb. Hey, this is Al calling from the future. We told you the story about John Matuzak being the first choice for the part of Buddy Gravers. There's an aspect of that cast change we discussed at length, but it didn't make it anywhere in the episode. We decided it was important enough we wanted to record a discussion about it. 
we recorded our discussion at the beginning of a first watch. A first watch is a casual recording with a mic on the coffee table. It's something we do for our patrons over on Patreon. And if you'd like to become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast. Now, here's the discussion recorded the Sunday night before this episode dropped. Welcome back to the coffee table, fellow babies. It's time for a first watch. We're going to first watch Clean Up Radio Everywhere. But before we do that, there was something we were talking about that we wanted to get on on uh, recorded somewhere. Uh, we just finished Till Debt Do Us Part, which was Hamilton Camp as Johnny's ex's new fiancé showing up. And we talked about the fact that John Matuzak was supposed to have been that character of Buddy, the the new husband, and how different physically Matusek was from Hamilton Camp. Because Hamilton Camp is a little guy. He's like five four, five five, something like that. Yeah, he's he. I think he was five 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 six. I can't remember. But now. still, I mean, uh, little among, guy amongst the guys, he was looking up. He looked up to Jennifer. He looked up to everybody. He looked up to everybody. Yes. And John Matuzak was originally supposed to be in that role. Matuzak is six seven and close to three hundred pounds. Right, but you said that after the first read. Yeah, that they decided Matuzak couldn't handle the material, and they they got him out of there. And within twelve hours, they had. Hamilton Camp in as Buddy. So they and went from one one degree. One complete extreme to the other. To the other. And a big, big muscular guy to little Hamilton Camp. And they did all those jokes with him punching Johnny in the arm and the mm-hmm. bear hug. And I just wonder how much of that was created on the fly or, you know, because you know Matuzak wasn't doing any of that stuff. He'd have killed Johnny. If yeah. he'd have punched him in the arm, he'd have knocked him out the window. And maybe, maybe that was in there. Maybe he was supposed to kind of roughhouse. I, I don't know. And then Johnny get you know. Yeah, and just the big bear, you know, because if if Matuzak had bit, given him a bear hug, it would have been funny, but in a different way. Mm-hmm, Hamilton mm-hmm. Camp coming up and like catching him around the hips, almost, you know, and hugging him. Right, because Hamilton Camp comes up to Johnny's shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. So I just so. I just don't know how much of a change. You know, they changed the actor. But they also changed the physicality of the actor, so I just wonder so how, how much, much that impacted. Yeah, impacted Did that they part change changing the script or, or, or just the delivery, the way Hamilton Camp delivers how he the interprets lines it, yeah. and how he interprets it and plays it would be completely different than how Matuzak would Matuzak would have done it. So they gave it their he gave it his own flavor. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's a good. It's a good question. It'd be fun to. To, to if, we, know. if we could talk to somebody that knows, but right. Matuzak unfortunately passed away at a very young age. He was like in his late 30s when he died. Um, we just lost Howard Hessman, so we can't and ask him. Hamilton Camp is gone. Hamilton's gone, so not a lot of folks that can clarify that for us. But I just wonder, that's just a, a such a drastic difference in physicality. It had to have affected mm-hmm. it's how, just how they to- treated it. Fun to think about. Yeah. Well, and I'm just picturing some of those scenes in Art's office with Hamilton standing between Art and Johnny. And he's looking up at both of them. And looking up at both of them. And just to imagine <laughs> Matuzak towering over both of them. If he were standing in the same spot, right, he'd have been looking down at... How tall did you say he was? He was 6'7". Six, 6'7", six, seven, six, seven, a former... 
he was a Urgh. defensive end. He also competed as strongest man strongest in the world man, yes. in like 77 or 78. And they said when he competed for strongest man, he was at 308 for his weight. So, I mean, this guy's massive. And to have him, I think it would have been funny to see him standing there. I mean, and both of them looking up it at him. It would have been interesting to see how he would have interpreted the part and acted it out. Yeah. But I think it would have been um, more difficult, you know, the, the, the jealousy that Johnny has for Buddy is because of his success and all this stuff. Right. But I think there would have been more just, wow, she got a real man here, you know, and then there would be jealousy from Johnny in that direction that he doesn't have necessarily with Hamilton Camp. And the energy that Hamilton yeah. Camp brought to the part and made he made it his own would... Matuzak was pretty. Been, he was pretty up. Would he, he have been able to, you know, carry that off? Yeah, I, I just don't think he had the comic chops. Was the thing he he had the he he was acting and he'd done a little bit of acting. He'd done a few things, nothing too strenuous, but uh, yeah, for the comedy part of it, I just don't know if he'd carry it off. So I'm curious to know why he was picked in the first place. Why? Well, according to he the Hessman's choice. Or according whatever. to the yeah, according to the story, he just. Never thought of anybody else uh, for that part. He wrote it for him. He wrote it with him in mind, uh, and and then he showed up and couldn't do it. It just so. didn't work. Yeah. So that's going to do it for Till Debt Do Us Part. So much fun seeing Hamilton Camp back in an entirely different role. Not a ton of laughs in that one. A lot of drama, uh, but kind of fun to see something written by Howard Hessman. So what is up for next week, Donna? We will be discussing Clean Up Radio Everywhere. A preacher with a group called Clean Up Radio Broadcasting wants WKRP to stop playing specific songs due to the lyrics. Mr. Carlson thinks the station should cooperate, while the rest say the songs are classics and shouldn't be subjected to censorship. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes. Find us on social media. Follow our Facebook page. We put a lot of fun stuff up on there at WKRPcast. For more WKRP fun, become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash WKRPcast. You'll get behind-the-scenes fun, full interviews, and more. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, wkrpcast at gmail.com. And remember to please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!